TED Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Adam Grant. I think about work a lot. That's why I wanted to tell you about Canva Docs, which will help you expertly craft your work communications. They have an AI text generator built in called MagicWrite, powered by OpenAI. You can generate any text you want. Job descriptions, marketing plans, sales proposals. Just start with a prompt and you'll have a draft in seconds. Tweak your draft and you're done. Try Canva Docs with an AI text generator built in at canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Got a business problem? There's a TED Talk for that. Stay updated on everything business on TED Business, a podcast hosted by Columbia Business School professor Modupe Akinola. Every week, she'll introduce you to leaders with unique insights on work, answering questions like, how do four-day work weeks work? Do will a machine ever take my job? Get some surprising answers on TED Business wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey everyone, it's Adam Grant. Welcome back to Rethinking, my podcast on the science of what makes us tick with the TED Audio Collective. I'm an organizational psychologist, and I'm taking you inside the minds of fascinating people to explore new thoughts and new ways of thinking. My guest today is Sarah Edmondson, who hosts the podcast A Little Bit Culty. She was a key whistleblower on the Nexium cult a racketeering enterprise involving sex trafficking, sexual abuse, forced labor, and fraud. Sarah described her experiences with Nexium in her memoir, Scarred, and in the docuseries, The Vow. I was originally talking with Sarah for an upcoming work-life episode on charisma, but she had so much insight to offer that I ended up rethinking that and decided to feature our full conversation here instead. She has a lot to teach us about questioning leadership and how to tell the difference between a strong culture and a cult. Before we get started, I just have to say that I've just finished a two-month break from all podcasts, so I'm feeling a little rusty. It was a very cathartic, a very need, a much-needed break of not talking about cult stuff for two months, although it does come up in conversation. Got it. So you, you think you're rusty on content as opposed to on conversation. That makes more sense. If you went on a two-month silent meditation retreat or something, I'm like, yeah, talking could be a little bit weird. Yeah, and I wouldn't do that anyway. A, because I wouldn't be able to sit still, and B, because 
I find that stuff a little bit culty, so I'm adver- I, I'm adverse to it. Oh, shots fired. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> they can be. I have so many questions. <laughs> I bet. I was in a cult for 12 years. I've been out for six, and apparently I love talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the cult you were in. So I joined in 2005 what I thought was a personal and professional development program. I had a community of like-minded individuals. Ironically, a lot of things that I've learned that you talk about in your podcast are things that we talked about in our cult. Leadership, communication, productivity, overcoming limitations. All of those things were great in, in terms of what we did in the personal and professional development side of things. There was a community of people who were all striving to be the best versions of ourselves and build humanity and all these wonderful things. And truly, it was an incredible community at a time. But there was always so many red flags, so many things that I didn't know what I was looking at that were indications of something else going on that I couldn't see until it was too late. But I eventually woke up as sort of what we call it, recognizing what we were a part of was actually a cover for something much more nefarious. And that was an incredibly challenging and traumatizing time in my life when I realized that not only was this community the opposite of what I was telling people it was. And note that I was a recruiter for this group. I was going around telling people that the leader, who's now in jail for for, uh, many different crimes for 120 years plus five years probation, that he was the most noble, humanitarian, ethical man in the whole world. And um, turns out that was just a cover for him to sex traffic, manipulate, coerce, and eventually brand women with his initials, which is actually how I ended up waking up. So that was six years ago that uh, my husband and I and a group of others went to the authorities that led to an investigation, which led to the trial and the imprisonment of Keith Raniere. And the last six years have been about healing, trying to share this knowledge that I've learned and trying to help other people avoid the same pitfalls. Obviously, terribly sorry that you went through that, but on behalf of many, many people, grateful that you came out of it and you've shared so openly. Thanks, Adam. One of the things I've since learned is that you know any group can become culty, any organization can become culty, any family, religion, government, institution, anything with a hierarchy has the potential to have an abuse of power, which is ultimately what the structure of a cult is. It should be at the, at the top abusing power. I think that most people who are abusing power aren't going to be worried about it. They just want to continue abusing power. So it's good to question. I have to ask myself all the time, even as a parent, like, am I being manipulative? Is this the best way to achieve results with my kids? It's a good question to ask yourself. When organizational culture researchers distinguish between strong cultures and cults, they usually say the big difference is tolerance for dissent. Are you allowed to challenge authority? Are you allowed to disagree with decisions? Are you allowed to ask questions? Sounds like that's a a key distinction for you as well. Absolutely. I actually recently did a TEDx talk and I tried to give the five most important red flags and then five green flags. And one of the green flags was, can you ask questions? And, And also, can you leave? You can leave the group without being shunned or excommunicated. Almost every high control group or cult has that built-in mechanism. Do you remember the first meeting you had with Keith? 
my instinct was, who is this guy? He just looks like a normal kind of nerdy volleyball playing. He's not the typical charismatic leader that I've since studied in other cult leaders. But I think what he did do really well was he's really good at building rapport with people. And when you were with him, when he was focused on you, and especially because he'd been built up by the what we call the Greek chorus, like all the people around him. By the time I'd met him, I'd met many other people in the ranks of Nexium, all of whom put him on this pedestal and talked about him as being like the smartest man in the world and the genius that created this tech, which is the terms that they used to describe the methodology that we did in Nexium. The curriculum would be a more normal way of describing it. It's not technology, it's just a curriculum. So we'd learned this curriculum and I had a great respect for him, believing that he'd created this. I since know that he stole it from probably your podcast and you know, pretty brown and a bunch of other people. I hope not. <laughs> but like the, the things, the really, the truly, the thing, so many of the things that we learned were like directly plagiarized from major thought leaders, including like Eckhart Tolle and Buddhism and just like the tenets of how to be a good person. I just didn't know. I was, you know, 27. I wasn't educated enough to know that he'd stolen from like cognitive behavioral therapy and neuro-linguistic programming and all these things. Anyway, so I respected him. I personally didn't find him charismatic. There were a lot of other people around him I found way more charismatic that I was drawn into. But a lot of people, you know, were drawn into his little web. And I think the way that he used charisma was more about like connecting with you as a person and figuring out what it is that you wanted. And you just would feel kind of special in the glow of his attention would be the best way I would describe it. Wow. How did he do that? I remember once towards the end, he was asking me about when I was moving to Albany because I lived in Vancouver, which, by the way, is what kept me at a distance enough to be able to wake up when I did and not double down and remain devoted when everybody else did. He was holding my hand. So one of the things he was doing is there was a physical contact and it was eye gazing. So he was looking very deeply into my eyes. I felt in that moment, for the first time, comfortable with him One of the things that he would do is, and he was very strategic about this, he never directly said, hey, do you want to come for a walk with me or do this or that with me? He would have people around him say, oh, you're in town. Are you going to reach out to Keith? So then it would be coming from me to be like, I'm in town. Do you want to go for a walk? Which is usually how he would have one-on-one time. And I only did that a few times. And I remember he couldn't find his way in like he he was trying to like figure out what to relate with me on and and it just didn't work it was uncomfortable and I thought that was my problem but rapport was something that was actually taught in our curriculum there was a module on how to be in rapport how to build rapport with somebody how to meet them in their model and connect with them so that you could lead them somewhere else that was the whole point as a coach but Some people just have it naturally, like it's not something you think about. And then we'd have other coaches come in and they'd be like so awkward and really turn off the um, new students. So we'd have to teach them how to do it. And so some people have it, some people don't. And I think that's an element of charisma, but it's just a tool. It's It's like a knife in the hand of a surgeon or the knife in the hand of a murderer. It's who's wielding it and what's their goal. Charisma is not inherently good or bad. No. Um, it's, a, it's a tool that can mm-hmm. be used for good or evil. Ironically, that is a line that I learned in Nexium. It was when we talked about the concept of manipulation. We talked about manipulating in Nexium, and I think this is something that sociopaths love to do. They love to, like, put it all out there so you'd never consider 
them to do the thing that they're talking about. And he was referring to manipulation, which is the same thing. It's also a tool, just like charisma. Like you have to manipulate your kids to get them to brush their teeth. <laughs> you know, you're going, hey guys, we're going to listen to Elmo and it's going to be so fun. I'm like brush, brushy, brush. Do you know the brushing song for Elmo? Oh, yes. So, so good. Technically, that's a manipulation. It's not bad because you're getting them to brush your teeth. The, the bad part of it is when you get someone to be branded because they think they're part of a sorority and it turns out you're trying to put their initials on you like they're cattle so you can own them for the rest of your life. It's like the flip side. I have to make light of it. Otherwise, it's just too dark and awful. So we can joke, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. I have a colleague, uh, Jochen Menges, who, who did some research showing that Basically, when a leader is up in front of a crowd or an audience and is exuding charisma, that people often become awestruck and they end up sort of turning off their cognitive processing skills. They might even be more muted in the emotions they express. And, you know, he described this as, well, they're in awe. He labeled it the awestruck effect. I read the research and thought, sounds more like the dumbstruck effect. You're under a spell that literally interferes with your ability to reason. And I wonder if that describes some of what happened. I think so. It's the same thing that happens in like a concert, a music concert, or even I've seen it in like a Tony Robbins and the break where they're playing the the rah-rah music. There is a, a group, adrenaline, cortisol. People have like an incredible euphoric experience. And then they link that to the leader. They have a an overwhelming body sensation, and then they think they got that from the guru or whoever is standing in front of the stage. So they start to feel a dependency and they start to feel in enthralled. Yes. I, I think what you're describing is what Emil Durkheim, the founding father of sociology, called collective effervescence. Oh, yes. Where a group aligns around a purpose and they have a shared energy. Yeah. What, what you're highlighting is the nefarious side of this is feeling grateful to and dependent on the leader for creating that transcendent experience. I found it even before I was in Nexium in my brief rave days. I was a raver for like all of 10 minutes and the music and the drugs and the euphoria of that collective experience. We're humans and we're tribal and we're looking for belonging. We're trying to find our place and some people have that more than others. I'm certainly guilty of that. I was a camp counselor and I started an acting support group. Like I love groups. I love to be a part of things. And we're looking for that. And then we're having this collective effervescent experience and then attributing it to the person who's in the front of the stage. And then we have somebody like Keith who's like, oh, I'm not a guru. I'm just a guy. And like, no, no, you know, this sort of like faux humble thing, which also made him more appealing because his whole thing was that we shouldn't be dependent on anything on, on the external world to be happy which is also, you know, this b basic Buddhist tenet that, you know, happiness comes from within. And we're like, oh, right, of course. We don't want to have any dependencies except on Nexium for the rest of our lives. You're surfacing a couple other things that, that show up in the evidence on charismatic leadership. When you talk about this attribution that people make and the, the credit that they gave to Keith or to other leaders for creating that experience— we see that the same is actually true of charisma. There's a classic paper on the romance of leadership, which basically argued that um, charisma is not always a cause of group success. It's often a consequence. So you, you come into a group, you perceive them as magical or excellent or successful in some way, and then you assume, well, the leader must be charismatic. Right. 
Yeah. And it, it sounds like that's a version of, of what happened where you came in and, and people were sort of painting the picture of like, wow, you know, Keith built all this stuff that made Nexium great. Therefore, he must be great. Yes. And then you have a bunch of people that you trust. Like before I even met Keith, I was brought in by Mark Vicente, who had made this film called What the Bleep Do We Know? Right. Which was really big in the early 2000s. It was like spirituality meets quantum physics meets human potential in a film. And I met him and I was like, I was an, you know, I was an actress and I wanted to do more meaningful work. And here's this film that did that. And he's like, oh, if you like my film, then you may like this program I just did, the seminar that I just did. And it helps you to actually do the things I talk about in my film. So that was like, it hit all my values. I wanted to make conscious shifting media. I wanted to be aligned with people who were doing more meaningful work. I was drawn into him. If I had met Keith Ranieri at a, like on the street, I don't think I would have batted an eye. I mean, if he's like, you can take my program for $2,000, I'd be like, go fuck yourself. You're an idiot. That wasn't the selling point. It was somebody else who I trusted. Your story about being drawn to wanting to join a group, mm-hmm. um, having a, a thirst for belonging, really tracks closely with the research on two different kinds of charismatic relationships. They're usually called personalized and socialized. And the personalized charismatic relationships are are basically about being attached to the leader to fill a gap in your own identity. So you see it among people who lack clarity about who am I, what are my values, and then they sort of identify with the leader and in many cases are are vulnerable to blind faith and unquestioning obedience Mm -hmm. to, to provide that sense of this is where I fit in, this is where I belong, that's who I am. And then the more socialized charismatic relationships are not about the leader. They're about the mission. Um, I'm attached to this group for what it's accomplishing, for what it stands for. I think your story complicates this distinction a little bit because it sounds like uh, there, there were a lot of people who were drawn in for personalized reasons. You were sort of brought in for more socialized reasons, and that's part of what kept you at a distance. Mm-hmm. And I wondered what your reactions were to that. If you were to put me in, in one or the other, I'd say it's the belonging one, although the mission part was definitely a highlight for me. And whereas my husband was like mission only, he really didn't care about the community or belonging. And he's definitely more of like a lone wolf in that way. There's another component called, um, and just give me a second. Oh, I remember now, situational vulnerability. So you have another aspect, which is that depending on what's happening in the person's life, which is often a crossroads, it's like more like what's happening currently for them. For me, I was like, am I going to be an actor? Am I not going to be an actor? Like, what's my mission? What's my purpose? I know I have a purpose and I don't know what it is. And when then I met Mark and I did the five, they're like, oh, this is my purpose. I'm meant to be a coach. I'm meant to help people, but to help bring this mission to the world. And I had the belonging and I had a sense of community and I could make a living. It was like, this is Amazing. This I felt so lucky. I felt like I was a part of the bestest, secretest, luckiest club in the world at the time. But most people hit something like that in their lives. They go have a divorce, or they're like out of school, or they're moving to a new city, or they get sick, and they're at a particularly low point. It doesn't necessarily mean they're like a loser, or they're weak, or they have low self-esteem. It's a situational vulnerability. And it's not always like, hey, take this seminar and get branded with the leader's initials. It's come to a dinner party. Check out our book club. Have you ever campaigned for this political party? Do you like cold plunging? No, no, and no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I unfortunately love cold plunging, and I'm worried I'm going to get into another cult. Most people think they're not susceptible, which makes them, I think, more susceptible. It's better to understand where your levels of susceptibility are so that you can 
spot the red flags and know what you're looking at. Like if I had had the education I have now, I wouldn't have even signed up, let alone gone to my first five day because I would have been like, you're pressuring me. You're using scarcity mentality and preying on my FOMO to make me feel like I might miss this train that's taking off. Sarah, are you sure you don't have a PhD in psychology? <laughs> you know, my mom's a therapist. My dad's a psychotherapist, psychotherapist, former school counselor who's married to a psychologist or his partner is a psychologist. So I have a lot of influence in my life. And also what I learned in Nexium was basically plagiarized psych. Hey, Rethinking listeners, we're supported by our friends at Working Smarter, a new podcast from Dropbox exploring the exciting potential of AI in the workplace. Working Smarter talks with founders, researchers, and engineers about the things they're building and the problems they're solving with the help of the latest AI tools. Tools that can save them time, improve collaboration, and create more space for the work that matters most. On Working Smarter, hear practical discussions about what AI can do so that you can work smarter too. Listen to Working Smarter on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit workingsmarter.ai. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds. Thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. Okay, so I want to I want to turn the lens a little bit and ask you about your role as a recruiter in Nexium. Uh, I think it's probably safe to assume that you use charisma to draw people in. Tell me how. I mean, in retrospect, yes. I was never like thinking about that when I did it. I was never like, let me turn on my charisma so I can recruit you. But I'm outgoing. I like to connect with people. I've heard that I make people feel comfortable. I like people. I'm a kind person. So that package together made me a good recruiter because I also really believed in what we were doing. I'm a gatherer. It's what I do. When I was meeting with somebody and I either did it in a group session, like I was doing it in front of 30 people that other people would bring to an information night, or I was sitting with you, like if somebody introduced me to you, Adam, I'd be like, Adam, tell me about yourself. How can I help? What's going on for you? And I would just try to elicit what you wanted, what was stopping you from getting what you wanted and showing you how the five day or the the tools would help you get that. And I'd have to do that in a way that made you feel comfortable and not judged, right? Because we're talking about vulnerable stuff. And I think my charisma either drew people in and made them feel comfortable or didn't for whatever reason. And I didn't recruit everybody that I tried to, but I did have a very high success rate. Is it strange now promoting your podcast and saying, Ugh. here, come drink my Kool-Aid about how yes. you should never drink anyone's Kool-Aid? <laughs> it's been a very, very challenging road, actually, especially at the beginning when we're doing like sponsorships or like host red ads. And I'm like, I am Sarah and I love this product. And you should do it. like, oh, like sales is just so it's not challenging. I swear you should really <laughs> like the product. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> we go to this incredible resort in Canada and one cabin was available and I was telling people about trying to fill the cabin so I could have more friends there. And somebody said they couldn't afford it. And my instinct went into like my recruiting 
sales technique, which is to isolate and overcome. Like, well, if you had the money, would you still want to go? And then the goal is to like help them find the money. And as soon as I start to do that, I thought, I can't, I can't do this. Like, I don't want to try to convince anybody to do anything that they don't want to do ever again. A, because that's what I was basically trained to do. And then B, um, I just had to drop it. I just had to just stop right then and be like, okay, cool. No problem. You know what I mean? It was like just this icky feeling of bringing people along to anywhere. So yeah, with with the podcast, I'm very like, hey, we're on Patreon. If you want to come, great. If you don't, no problem. I cannot (laughs) do a hard sell. I can't push. It's a very challenging position to be in, actually, and almost didn't do it at all for that reason. I'm glad you did. Thanks. And I love the title, too. <laughs> a Little Bit Culty is such a great hook. Thanks. It's fun because there are lots of things that aren't full cults, but they're definitely a little bit culty. And I can now pinpoint what specifically on that checklist we talked about earlier makes it culty. And then people can just decide, is it healthy? Do I want to continue? So I'm curious about whether you've seen harmful charisma outside of Nexium. Oh, yeah. Uh, like, did you ever have a boss, for example, who who exercised it? Yeah. Well, you know what's crazy is that I was part of an acting group also in the early 2000s that I left just before Nexium because I found it culty. I had experiences with people before. I've had experiences with people after. I can spot it way more clearly now. But I still am a trusting person and... I'm constantly kind of like trying to check in on myself is like, is this my gut saying, you know, run for the hills because it has a trigger for me or is there truth in it? Take me back to your acting group. Mm. What was it that made this charismatic teacher a terror? Oh, she was a nightmare. I mean, she really, she created this atmosphere where you'd like walk up these stairs and this old brick and this little black room, a black box and light was on you. And you're like going there to grow. You're going there to be vulnerable and open up. And if, if somebody is teaching you who has good intentions and wants to lead you to the next level, you you have to do that as an actor. You have to like open up that Pandora's box and dig in. It's like therapy, right? You have to be willing to be open. So there's something sort of exhilarating about that. And then she would make you do things that like went way out of your comfort zone. It was just really crossing people's boundaries. And if you weren't willing to do it, you weren't doing the work. You were in resistance. And so there was a level of um, using her authority to get people to be incredibly uncomfortable to the point where they would like break down emotionally. And if they didn't do that, then they weren't like real actors. And she would say something to me like, you know, I see you're angry or something like that. I don't feel like I'm angry. And then she'd be like, everybody, do you see? Do you see the stereotype? But like she turned the group against you and you kind of would have to just admit that you were angry to like get through the exercise. Um, Either that or she's really pissing you off yeah. by accusing you of an emotion yeah. you're not even feeling. Right. Well, now I'm angry. Yeah, no, and, I, and you know what? Ironically, I had the same kind of pattern in Nexium, where it's like, and that now I understand about gaslighting and all these different terms that I didn't know at the time, but... She used people to be her minions, to do things for her. And she, you were in the, the group and then became not about acting, but like, am I in her favor or not in her favor? And she didn't abuse everybody. A lot of people got great treatment. And I do think she was a skilled acting teacher in terms of getting people to the next level and was able to coach people. But then other people she would like abuse severely. And they thought that there was something wrong with them because these people can't be total dicks to everybody because then if you walk in and see everybody treated poorly, you're like, well, I'm not going to be a part of this. You have to see some people 
being respected and being taught properly. And so that when it comes to you and you get shit, you're like, oh man, I really screwed up. There's something wrong with me. I got to work on that, right? There has to be a balance. What is it that concerns you about charismatic leaders? It's a currency that it's the value is disproportionate to what it is. I do think that unfortunately to be a leader or thought leader or to be in in the public space and to inspire and move people, you have to have a certain amount of it Otherwise, people don't tune in. I think a, a lot of charismatic leaders, like, <laughs> I guess there's some telltale signs for me. You know, one is that they're preaching instead of teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, another is that they're promoting themselves instead of their ideas. Yes. One of the things I always tell people is, is Google them. If you see a leader or a group and you're not sure, if you type in like, is blank a cult and anything negative comes up, if there's a lawsuit or there's allegations or bad press, where there's smoke, there's usually fire. And if you ask that person about that and they say, oh, that's just a jilted ex-lover, she's crazy, red flag. <laughs> How they treat their opponents is a real telltale sign for me. And also, like, is it consistent? How, how are they with the people around them? How are they with the wait staff at a restaurant? Are they totally kind and with you and present. And then they're like, hey, I need some water, you know, and they can turn it off and they're being flippant. I don't like that. Kind people, good people are consistent. They don't use it as a tool. What were they doing before this thing? What's their background? What's their training? It's okay to obviously make money off a product. That's not a problem. Um, Did they create it? Are there people involved? Where's the money going? Ask the questions. And if you ask the questions and you get shot down with any kind of gaslighting, you're made to feel ashamed, that's a major problem. Well, thank you, Sarah. This has been incredibly insightful. If you decide you want to go down the the PhD route, let me know. (laughs) I think you could contribute a lot to the field, but you're already adding a lot of value in the public discourse regardless. So I appreciate that. may not be necessary, but one day. Maybe one day, yeah, maybe when the kids are a little bit older. What Sarah drove home for me is that we need to think more carefully about the attachments we form. Our highest loyalty belongs to principles, not to people or places. The most important form of integrity is fidelity to our values. Rethinking is hosted by me, Adam Grant. This show is part of the TED Audio Collective, and this episode was produced and mixed by Cosmic Standard. Our producers are Hannah Kingsley Ma and Asia Simpson. Our editor is Alejandra Salazar. Our fact checker is Paul Durbin. Original music by Hansdale Sue and Allison Layton Brown. Our team includes Eliza Smith, Jacob Winnick, Samaya Adams, Michelle Quint, Banban Cheng, Julia Dickerson, and Whitney Pennington Rogers. You are going to be shit talk. Oh, can I swear on this? You're going to be trash talked. Definitely. Okay. Great. I have very bad potty mouth. It's something I'm working on as we speak. Still striving to be the best version of myself. (laughs) (laughs) Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks running shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning, 
It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Go 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more.